Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net, and we are speaking with Professor Gregory Shaw, Professor of Religious Studies and Theology at Stonehill College in Massachusetts. Gregory, thank you very much for coming on the Schwepp and talking to us about the great and the divine Iamblichus. I'm glad to be here. I've I've really been enjoying your uh, podcast, so this nice is a pleasure. You've written a lot about Yamlikos and, and specifically theurgy. I think a lot of credit goes to your work for making some something that has been not that respectable in an already not very respectable field that is taking ancient Platonism seriously as philosophy, right? Theurgy, making that very much on the table of respectable academic debate, something we should take seriously, something we should explore on its own terms. And uh, a number of articles have come out, but your book, Theurgy and the Soul, the Neoplatonism of Iamblichus, I think blew a lot of minds and shifted debate very much into that kind of, let's take this stuff seriously. Let's look at this in a way that makes sense rather than in a, in a kind of like brushing it aside to get to the more important stuff or whatever approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd like to explore the ideas, your, your sort of take on theurgy and why it's important and interesting and meaty rather than, <laughs> you know, just some uh, superstition tarted up with philosophy or magic being given a philosophical underpinning or whatever. Yeah, I, I'd be happy to try to to tell you how I came into to the subject. Please into, do. And, and to wanted to explore it. It wasn't the typical academic path that um, I was in an academic field and wanted to find something obscure that nobody had covered yet. And I could cover it and, and make a name for myself because um, it was my turf, that sort of thing. I came into it from an entirely different approach. Um, I had been immersed in... Um, Hindu yoga traditions as a practitioner and had done a lot of meditation and uh, chanting. And um, I, for a while, I was part of a group that had a teacher who presented herself as, as, as giving us a Tibetan kinds of initiatory uh, experiences. So I was what you'd call um, an older intellectual kind of hippie who was really interested in spiritual um, development. And anyone who's seriously interested in spiritual development and who is honest knows that you pretty much reach a dead end soon and that you find out that that really what you're pursuing is how profoundly can I inflate my ego, which is what ends up happening from for most of these people, including me. And yet you still do these practices. So I, I was doing practices, chanting and so on. And uh, I had dropped out of college years earlier because I, I didn't see any point in it and wanted just simply to get enlightened and find a guru. Right. So I went back to college, got involved in this group, was doing these practices, and um, I had a knack for being able to write about um, Western esoteric uh, topics that a lot of the, the people who wrote about it didn't really seem to have much of, how would I put it? A feel for. And there were a few people, a few voices that I liked, and I, I would sort of crib from them and borrow from them and and find my own voice through borrowing like that. But it wasn't until I was in graduate school at UC Santa Barbara when I decided to go to their uh, school for religious studies that I took a class from a professor named Richard Hecht in Religions of the Roman Empire. And he said, why don't you read 
E.R. Dodds and his comments on theurgy, uh, which are at the end of Greeks and the Irrational, um, and uh, read Iamblichus's On the Mysteries and tell me what you think. Write a paper on these on these two things, uh, Dodds's take on theurgy. So I read um, On the Mysteries and I read Dodds, and what struck me was how profoundly Dodds seemed to have I mean, Dodds was brilliant. Dodds is interesting. And I still think he's brilliant and interesting. But he seemed to be somehow didn't have an ear for what I consider to be the genuinely theurgical phenomenology that Iamblichus was presenting in On the Mysteries. Right. And, and so I began to write about that largely based on my own experiences through um, performing certain Right. So I don't want to keep talking about this, but there's one one last little piece of the story that I use to sort of open me up. I used to go out into the desert when I lived in Arizona. Before I went to UC Santa Barbara, I lived near Phoenix and I'd go out in the morning and I'd find a little place out in the desert and I'd sit with my incense, I'd chant, I'd meditate, chant, meditate. And um, I was doing Tibetan chants and on a few occasions my experience was that I wasn't chanting, that I was being chanted. The chant itself seemed to have an autonomy and, and a reality that I became receptive to. So when I would enter into that state of receptivity and it happened in the process of chanting, I simply, it, it was like um, being launched by a glider. I would do the rituals like a, a plane would take a glider up, but then I would, the ritual then would sort of like launch me into the current. And the current was, was carried by this, these sounds and the sounds would carry me and they had the, the power and they had the presence and they opened me up into a profound state. Um, and I had that as an experience. And then when I read Iamblichus talk about prayers that we don't pray to the gods, the gods pray through us. And that, and they they talk to themselves through our prayers, and this whole notion of a divine circulation that we have access to through performing these rituals. I thought that guy got it. He was describing the kind of phenomenological experience that I'd had in a completely different mm, tradition, and and it pleased me because I really wanted to find spirituality in Western traditions and not pretend to be a Hindu or pretend to be a Tibetan as so many people tend to do. So, mm. so that's, that's, that was my entree to Iamblichian theurgy. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, that instinct to try to find this stuff in Western traditions is actually at the root of the term Western esotericism. It was coined not by scholars, even though we use it, but by, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> people roughly sort of theosophical adjacent late 19th century thinkers like A.E. Waite, who are, who are just like, we don't need all this Buddhist stuff and all this kind of other stuff. We have it already. We have our own versions. And, and you know, here's a translation. Here's an English translation of Plotinus for a mass market audience. Here's an English translation of these dialogues of Plato. And suddenly, you know, people started going, oh, we do have this stuff in the Western mm -hmm, tradition. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're coming at it from this phenomenological perspective, which I think it's great, first of all, to put that, just lay your cards on the table, right? Yeah. As to where you're coming from with this stuff. But also, I think, incredibly important for approaching Iamblichus, because 
this is true for any interpretation of, of, a, of a writer, but especially someone like Iamblichus, who gives us not only theory, but phenomenology. He says, for example, this is what a god looks like when it appears, but this is what a daimon looks like when it appears. They look different. They have different effects on your body. Like these ones make you feel expansive and these ones make you shiver and freak out and they feel really like bad physically, you know, this sort of mm-hmm. blatantly phenomenological stuff, which yeah. if you're approaching Platonism from a let's argue, let's look at arguments and kind of analytically parse through the kind of thinking that's going on, you'd have to just ignore that bit of Yamblichus and say, well, that, that doesn't make any sense at all vis-a-vis Platonist theory. So we're just going to forget it and talk about his doctrine of matter or something like that. Exactly. That's that's basically how he had been approached. Yeah. Um, and, and it's still how he is approached by most of us in the academic world because we can control that and, and we can objectify it. And it sort of fits into our technologized minds where we, we treat all these theories as subtle things and we stack them up and compare them like they're little objects in a um, philosophy store and that we become masters of this store, that store, and I've shopped at this store. But they're all just objects and things. And the experiential dimension, which is what people like Iamblichus, and I would say also Plotinus, Absolutely. and the other Platonists were about, was the experiential thing that that if as Plotinus says, anyone who has this has had this experience knows what I'm talking about, and yeah. and that just offends the the concept, you know, the modern conceptual mind. What do you mean? Anyone who's had this experience knows what I'm talking about. It well, seems elitist. It seems offensive, and all those things. Yeah, it, it's also just making a claim that this is inaccessible to you if you haven't, if you don't know what I mean. Um, and the fact that, yes, that's true. The fact that Plotinus puts this into the language of the mysteries, following a long Platonist trope, also yes. ex- extenuates that because you think, oh, so you're the initiate, and I'm not the initiate. What's all this elitism about? But then we can con- we can contrast Plotinus's actual approach, as reported by Porphyry, which is that all comers welcome in the philosophic seminar. He's right. this really generous guy that everyone's entrusting with their children because he's like this right. super trustworthy, lovely cat. And right. Iamblichus, while being much more hieratic, maybe, in his ways, yes. is still consorting with his students all the time. He's deeply social. He's deeply sociable. Right. He's not just some right. kind of hierophant off in the distance being no, unapproachable. No, and, you know, And that's the interesting thing. As, as much as I admire contemporary uh, magical traditions who are trying to appropriate uh, Iamblichian theurgy or uh, Neoplatonism, Mm, there seems to be an almost, um, how would they put it, slightly inauthentic to me kind of a caricature of what they think a hierophant is. And so people might wear certain kind of costumes or, or you know, present themselves with specialized names or, and, and have a sort of presentation like, like it's a show, mm. like uh, it's the hierophant show and you can be part of my scene and enter into my hierophantic circle in which I am the center and you can revolve around. And it, and it just becomes an, an unfortunate distortion of what I think Plotinus and Iamblichus in my, at least as I understand it, what they were like, which was um, come on and hang out with me. We're going to talk about deep ideas and deep experiences and take a walk and 
I dig what you're saying, not, but I would I not would, create. Uh, yeah, yeah. I sorry to interrupt. I would, I would put, I would go ahead as a little pushback against. No, that. do it. What about Yamblukus? Uh, according yes. to Eunapius, going first, they're saying Yamblukus, Yamblukus. We hear you like levitate, and your your clothes take on this golden hue when you meditate and stuff. He's like, no, 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 no. This is nonsense. Don't be silly. But eventually, yeah. they go to this uh, these hot springs at Gadara, and he's like, you know what, guys. I'm going to produce the miracle you've been asking for. And he produces this miracle. He makes these beautiful young boys appear out of the depths of the water and says, here yes. they are. Um, that's pretty hierophantic, as it were. Well, there's no question. And, and in, <laughs> that story by itself um, put, puts you right on your head, stands you on your head. I mean, you know, he does something that's impossible. Right. But then Pl- Plotinus did things that were impossible, too. And this is the side of the tradition that we can't touch as intellectuals and academics. And that is that they had what could be called supernormal powers. Right. That they had what, what in Hindu tradition they called siddhis, which is powers, perfections. They could have a kind of magical control of the, of the world that we're living in, like manifesting these boys from the waters. I, I still don't quite know how I make sense of that. I'm still so rational and my habits are so rational that I, um, I haven't wrapped my head around that story. I hear Though it. I think Eunapius clearly thinks it happened. Mm. Um, and, and he says, there's even wilder stories in this, but I can't tell them because we didn't have a su- sufficient number of witnesses. Yeah. But, Although that's also kind of a just the sort of thing a fourth century rhetor says, right? It's like a kind of flowery little. <laughs> and true. there's even deeper mysteries. Like this is you're not just, <laughs> this is true, kind true. of a stylistic thing. Um, yeah, I think it's a good point. Good I can think of two two ways that that suggest themselves for interpreting that. Um, yeah. Oh, I'd like to hear with it with two subsidiary with a you know little forking thing. So one is just to take on something like a weird naturalism, like Jeffrey Kripal in his work, mm-hmm. or Eric Davis, a friend of the podcast, mm-hmm. would, would put forward. Like, you don't have to make strong claims about supernatural this or that. You just admit that weird stuff happens to people, mm-hmm. right? Which is does seem to be a kind of a irreducible part of the human experience. Or you talk about uh, religious stage managing. Because, you know, later in Eunapius, we have Maximus of Ephesus, who does stuff like make the statue of Hecate smile and laugh and the torches burst into flames. Now, we know that the ancients had automata, like statues that did crazy stuff like this. By modern standards, you'd maybe classify that as religious fakery or fraud, like the statue that makes a weird screaming sound that we find in Hero of uh, Alexandria. But another way of looking at that is, and this is where I see a fork, there's two possible ways of interpreting that. One is that they just didn't draw the same line as we do between magic and nature like yes that's it of course it's the the statue screaming because you boiled some water under a thing that made the thing turn and it you know like makes this sound but isn't that miraculous isn't that an example of the gods working through the world right that's one (laughs) possible ancient take or a kind of um fake it till you make it approach to magic like I'm Yamblukus and my disciples won't shut up about these miracles. I'm mm-hmm. going to like stage manage a little thing with some beautiful youths I know in the hot springs of Gadara. Maybe you can even pay an obol to the guys who run the hot springs of Gadara and they'll supply you with 
two beautiful youths to do a thing like this. And then mm-hmm. the buttes will appear and my disciples will stop bothering me and also maybe be more, even more zealous in their approach to the higher realities, which is where we're really trying to get. Therefore, it's worth my doing it. And, and you know, like someone like, a, like say, a Catholic priest mm-hmm. might say, well, yeah, I know like some of the mass is pageantry. You know, the fact that I'm wearing this big purple outfit with gold embroidery on it and stuff like that. It's not like that makes me more godly. It's just, it's for the kind of creating an experience. But that doesn't mean that the mass is not a real spiritual event, right? So there can be like pageantry and theater to help generate uh, a spiritual um, result in, in an audience. That's an interesting interpretation of the event at Gadara that I had never even considered. But it doesn't, I don't find it offensive either, hmm. um, because I think that that line that we draw between uh, miracle and something that's just natural or stage managed, I don't think that they did draw that line right. at, like we do. And, and what they were interested in is what allows people to have an experience that leads them to a deeper state. And that's what they were focused on. So, what we would be offended by, which looks like manipulation or fakery, uh, wouldn't even probably occur to them in in that way. As far as um, I, I really that that story still puzzles me in general, and, and that's just yet one more possible interpretation of how it happened that I hadn't thought of before. I liked the the sort of um, symbolic interpretation of it is that the name of the two springs were Eros and Anteros. The Eros and Anteros being the outflow and the return flow of erotic energy, which is in a sense, a kind of a theurgical way of looking at the entire universe or reality or creation, that it's all outgoing and, and hungering to come back, which is also very platonic. Yeah. And that, that is manifested in these two boys who then embrace the amblicus, the theurgist, who's sort of the great magus, who's creating the world and bringing it back to, to its origin continually. So that's that's the spin I put on it, but it's it doesn't really address the phenomenon itself yeah. when they had it. I love your spin on it, and I think it fits really well in the thought world that lies behind Porphyry's on the Cave of the Nymphs as well. The symbolical language of watery, dark subterranean springs being a a kind of locus symbolizing entering into and leaving the world the soul's descent Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. ascent um, Mm -hmm, in a kind mm -hmm. of cycle Mm -hmm. now let's talk about the de mysteries for a bit okay yeah um one of the things that you have i think rightly done is de-dualized yamlikus's theory of matter and embodiment so the idea of a platonic dualism. So you have a immaterial, incorporeal world of forms versus a corporeal, uh, materialized world of becoming. The two are sort of never the twain shall meet. This yeah. dualist approach to Platonism, you're saying the Iamblichus is really militant against this. Now, the place mm-hmm. I, that I maybe disagree with you is that I, yeah. I think that Plotinus is equally non-dualist in his approach. But that's another question. The first the first thing I'd like to talk to you about is just if you could expand a little bit on this, like Yamblikos, how he approaches matter and embodiment and the kind of um, approach to matter of let's dive into the material world to obtain our theosis, to obtain our salvation even, 
as opposed to mm-hmm. try to escape. Right. Um, well, firstly, my favorite people to talk to philosophically agree with you entirely that Plotinus is equally non-dual and that my characterization of Plotinus as presenting more of a dualist view is a caricature and unfair to Plotinus. And I would admit that it is. And I've tried to correct that in a couple of articles. But on the other hand, and, and I think probably I shouldn't say this, but in order to sort of get people to appreciate the non-dual by highlighting what looks like very dualist sorts of statements in Plotinus, one can appreciate more um, clearly the difference that Iamblichus presents to the Platonic tradition. And so that's what I've, I've tended to do. Yeah. I think that the idea of hmm, escaping from the body and from the material world, hmm, there's the philosophical differences in the tradition, and there's my own phenomenological wrestling with that in my own life. And, and they're not entirely separable for me because if you don't mind, I, I'll, I'll lean into that a little bit. Please do. My background. When I was involved in yoga, I was completely immersed in the dualist approach that I had to get away from my body. I had to get away from this world. And I spent oh, a good bit of my days for about five, six years in a kind of a trance state of sorts, which was, I would say, kind of disembodied. I had you know, I wasn't involved in a relationship with anybody. I was sort of aloof from and uh, immersed in my um, reading and in my mind and in my yoga and in my elevated state, which I really experienced. But there was something ultimately that seemed unsatisfying about being so high and aloof. And I thought, as Jung put it, there's a difference between being perfect and being whole. And I thought I, I would as achieving a kind of yogic perfection, but I was not whole or complete. And I needed to lose that and get back into my body, get into the mess of even relationships, romantic relationships, which are always messy and difficult, and you're never in control. And that doesn't fit into a yogic realm of perfection. It's... Um, it's difficult, but I thought that's what I needed. And about the time that I was going through that personally was about the time I discovered Iamblichus. And I thought, well, here's a guy that says that matter uh, is fundamentally good. Matter is a manifestation of the one, that things in the world and even our uh, fixations in the world are not intrinsically bad if one learns how to enter them um, in a unitive way, in a way that, that mirrors somehow the way the one reveals itself in the world, that, that the soul should also embrace the world in alignment with that unfolding of the one, that he was inviting us as embodied souls to enter into the outflow of the one into the world, which includes embodiment, as opposed to saying, oh, it hurts too much to be in the body. It hurts too much to be in a relationship where this person's incredibly neurotic and it makes me more neurotic. I just have to cut everything out and get into my cone of perfection and silence, which is to escape the world. And Iamblichus provided a model that was, no, find out how the divine, how the one 
is revealed even in your neuroses, even in the most sordid uh, of elements of the world, and somehow embrace matter as the way that you can truly become the one in a body, that the embodied person can become a manifestation, a living synthema of the divine. If you enter into that current that that's always being that's always in play, that's always unfolding, but that we're somehow in not seeing it, not hearing it, not feeling it. And instead of escaping from it all, learn how to enter into it. So if I were to characterize it this way, the music is being played. Iamblik is saying, learn how to dance to the music. And I thought that some Platonists and some people interpreting Plotinus were saying, get out of the music entirely. It's a bad situation. It's too difficult. It leads to pain. Yes, it does lead to pain, but that's part of the music. So that's kind of the non-dual take that I gravitated to with the Amblicus was that he wanted to help us learn how to engage in all of those Pythagorean metaphysical realities, those Platonic realities, that the forms are revealing themselves in the world continually. And it's not like they're in some separated heaven world that we only get to when we die which I don't think that's the Amblicus. And I don't, even, I don't even think that's Plato. No, I don't think it's Plato either. Yeah. It's also not Plotinus. Plotinus, and this is interesting because Plotinus says it's not separated from where we are now because we're there now. Mm-hmm. He talks about mm-hmm. noetic topos all the time. He talks about the noose as a place right. beyond the heavens, but at the same time, we're there now. We are not cut off from it even now. So in a way, they're both arguing for strong, immanentist, like the noetic read divine reality is here. They're just, the, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. theoretical proposition is totally different. Yamaka's like, no, 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 you cannot argue for a, a undescended self. It's wrong. Hmm. But they both make a, at least arguably, an analogous argument for the presence of, of the divine to the human even when embodied. I agree with you. I think they had a, a different um, method of trying to communicate that. Yeah. And that um, Plotinus's method might easily be misunderstood hmm. by, especially us contemporaries who say, oh yes, I'm, I'm, I'm the divine now. I always felt like I was, my mama loved me and you know, I'm perfect and, and then enroll with it, um, which doesn't seem to include the profound loss of that sort of egocentric satisfaction that I think would be necessary. But Plotinus was a rare bird. He was an incredibly, incredibly rare bird. And I think Iamblichus kind of gives, he gives a a, a method really with theurgy for any kind of person that we can get a taste of what Plotinus is talking about incrementally or by degrees or depending on what kind of life you're living and that ultimately i agree with you they both get to a non-dual place in which one is um, experiencing the divine now and it's not some other place but iamblichus wraps that up within the kind of the safety net of a theurgic ritual Mm. as as a way to access it and I've argued that he does that in order to ensure that um, 
we don't misunderstand it or misappropriate it or think that I, you know, I, of course, don't need rituals just because I'm an Oxford classical scholar. And of course, I don't need rituals. I'm like Plotinus, rationality is the thing. And I think we have misconstrued, a lot of us have misconstrued Plotinian noesis for a kind of a conceptual clarity. Yeah. And it's not that. It's something different from that. It's 100% and, not that. Whatever it is, it ain't that. Because he says again and again, it's not that. <laughs> he, he says yeah, it. No, he can't says be more it, clear about it. It's not yeah, thinking, guys. It's really not thinking. Because it's not in time. It's not discursive. It's not about concepts. It's right. unmediated interpenetration with the ultimate realities such that you are mutually transparent with them and they are you and you are they. Yeah. yeah. It's not thinking hard about stuff. Yeah, I think that there is, how would I put this? The, the tendency, however, is that some of the things that Plotinus says about the body and about the material world leads to or can lead to a kind of dualist understanding. Absolutely. Uh, that um, Iamblichus's language really doesn't allow for or mm. support as much. You could still you could still find a dualist element in some of Iamblichus's language as well, but less so than in Plotinus. Mm. Um, I agree with you. Is it, it would you say it's fair to say that when read just off the cuff without really exploring the ideas, Plotinus has just more of a dualistic vibe generally, like where he talks about yeah. matter as the source of evil and stuff like this. Then if you penetrate deeper into the the works, you start to question that. And you know, obviously there's the argument Yeah against the Gnostics where he comes out and says, how can you say the cosmos is evil? It's the best possible cosmos in all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. but the vibe is dual is way more dualist than in Yambacus. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Even Jean Triard, who, who is the French Neoplatonic scholar that I learned a great deal from. And he knew Plotinus backwards and forwards. And he said, yeah, Plotinus's language is more dualist. I mean, it, the dualist vibe, as you're saying, but a deeper reading of it realizes that he's not a dualist, even though the language can, can appear that way. And we're limited by language to talk. How, how do we speak about non-dual states in the grammar that we use? It's, you know, we say I, you, and, and we're trying to talk about something where the, there is no I and you. And, and these don't mean the same things in the non-dual state. Uh, that's where you have to go to poets like Rumi and people who try to enchant us into it. Mm. Um, or maybe maybe what's called for is a Sufi reading of Platonist metaphysics, right? Metaphysics as lift, yeah. as descriptions of lift. You know, how do you, how do you describe a non-dual state? Well, one way might be to uh, develop a very uh, advanced theory of noose and noesis. Um, yes. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, mm. Where it's lived. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and in that sense, it's not something that I think that, that our, our conceptual capacity and our sort of um, appetitive state can be so energized that we tend to want to be able to grasp these things as if we possess them and capture them and, and appropriate them. And the discipline is to realize that it's always a light touch that there are moments where we can be um, receptive to these states and they come to us and we're, we're allowed to, to kind of like be carried by the wind of those states, but we never can possess them. They're, they're always not in our possession. They're always beyond us in terms of our functioning, egocentric, 
states. And I don't think there's anything wrong about being here in our egocentric states. That's what we're called to do. It's, you know, being in the material world and being in bodies and, and having an identity. But, but we have to learn how to sort of step out of that a little bit in order to engage those states. And that's when you say the Sufi kind of circles that might engender moments where those things can happen more often. That's what I was thinking of. So when you say that, I think, mm. okay, this could be why. If I try to put that into Yumblican terms, if I'm going to, if I'm going to yeah. take that idea and put, try to think where do I find that in Yumblicals, it's, it's immediately I find it in the fact that he says human souls are human souls and they stay as human souls. They can't transform into the noose. They can't like, you know, we're human. That's it. Mm-hmm. We can mm-hmm. be divinized, but then mm-hmm. we're divinized humans. We're not mm-hmm. the one. We're not uh, the supreme Godhead. And that's maybe, well, I think you're t- what you've just said is a better interpretation of that approach from Yamblichus than we yeah. normally find in uh, discussion of it, where it's seen as this kind of like, he read some Plato and he said, Plato says that we're human souls, therefore we're human souls and that's it. And there's, you know, this kind of, uh, he approached it strictly from a, from a kind of theoretical Oh, right. Well, um, yeah, and it's a tricky thing. It it, it requires a a really kind of being engaged in it reflectively and to some degree experientially to get a sense of what he was trying to understand with the human soul. One of the people who's written about it and one of the books that I think is one of the best books on the subtlety of the Amblichus' reflection on the soul is Carlos Steele's book, um, The Changing Self, Mm. which... He, he recognizes that Iamblichus, if he does anything new in the Platonic tradition, is this introduction that, that the self or the soul, which is immortal and therefore not changeable and so on, really does undergo change. The nature of its changelessness requires that it change, which is a paradox and an impossibility. But that's what Iamblichus, in a sense, demands is part of the... Um, the paradox of what it is to be a divine being in a mortal state, which is what ultimately he thinks we are. But if we, as soon as we start to say we're not mortals, then we're losing touch with what our divinity needs us to do, which is to be mortal. So in order for us to truly be, stay in touch with our immortality, we have to stay mortal. And that's the paradox. It's only through our mortality that the doorway opens to what's immortal in us. Because that's the yeah that's 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 kind of the intuition I have about it. I like it, um, and and you know, Yamblichus expresses this in, uh, for example, the fragments we have of the De Anima, very much from a perspective of Platonist literalist reader of Plato. He's saying, you know, I've read Plato. Plato doesn't say that we're, you know, like if you read the the account of ascent in the Phaedrus the human souls that are kind of following in the train of the gods have a really, really difficult time to poke their heads up into the world of forms and kind of see the realities there. And they can only do it if, they're, if their souls are perfectly attuned. And then even so, they're very likely to kind of fall back down. And then you get this right. sort of celestial traffic jam of different soul chariots bumping into each other. The gods can go out there and just chill in, the, mm-hmm. in what later Platonism would interpret as the noetic world. But humans have a really, really tough time. Um, I think what Plotinus does there is read Plato's description of the immortal souls, 
which mm-hmm. Plato seemingly means the gods, uh, as yeah. well humans humans can be part of that immortal yeah. soul category. And Yamaka is just saying, no, I'm just reading the Plato when he says the, the humans have a really tough time and they have to really struggle and the gods are the ones who are just up there and we kind of do our best to poke our noses up beyond the curtain so he is more true to plato in that sense like by any kind of contextualized reading of plato yeah 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 yeah. i I see what you're saying you know in 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 when i've tried to make sense of of iamblichus with respect to plotinus plotinus talks about the undescended soul and he says, you know, I'm going to say something that seems to really go against the tradition here. And this is in four, eight, whatever it is on the soul. He said, there's a part of us that never really does descend. And that is what Iamblichus objects to. Yes, we do descend. But then Iamblichus talks about, well, the one of the soul. Mm. Then this one of the soul is what we engage or open up to when we perform theurgical rituals. And it's through the one of the soul that then the, the, the divine comes into us. And I think that the functional equivalent is when Iamblichus talks about the one of the soul. Yeah. Um, or, and and, and he just the one of matter, the one of the yes, body the in one a way. Of, that's right. It's, it's, it's just a different way of engaging, I, I think that I'll call it phenomenological terrain, yeah. um, that Plotinus experiences it and then describes it his way. Iamblichus uh, describes it in another way. But I think there's a similar phenomenology going on there. Although it, it probably does make a difference that Iamblichus is more explicitly willing to reach out to the natural world and find synthemata in nature, in trees, in rocks, in plants, in, in people. And I think that for me, one of the people who, who best exemplifies Iamblichian theurgy in a later time is Marsilio Ficino, mm. who has his how to stay, how to live one's life in harmony with the heavens. And he talks about different animals and different plants and, and everything else that resonate with different parts of the soul and that we need to basically talks about theurgical rituals to engage the synthemata of nature yeah. in order to uh, bring us to the gods. Now, Ficino is, is riffing on Iamblichus specifically because yes. he's already read um, and translated the De Mysteries when he writes the third book yes, of he... Three Books on Life. But he's yes. also engaging with a much longer tradition, which is a medieval tradition that really is transmitted more through Arabs mm-hmm. initially, but, but finds its way into the Latin world, which itself is uh, expanding on the the kind of ancient tradition of correspondences that we find in books like the Hermetic Kiranides, which is probably from the second century BCE. So the occult properties of stones and plants and stuff like this as, as mm-hmm, uh, you know, mm-hmm. manifestations of the divine in the physical world. And I think Iamblichus is riffing on that same tradition. And maybe that's a, a way to segue into something I'd really like to talk to you about, which is... Yeah, great. Um, Perfect. People listening to this are going, wow, that, you know, I like this uh, reading of Iamblichus. It's really cool. Now, what the hell does this have to do with conjuring gods and daimones to visible appearance, burning incense, maybe animating statues, doing all this ritual magic stuff, mm-hmm. putting magic in the usual brackets that we use, you know, so stuff, practices that are familiar to us from mm-hmm. the Greek magical papyri, but also from Iamblichus in a completely different context. What does that kind of ritual practice have to do with this phenomenology you're talking about? Well, there's, I guess there's three things, the phenomenology, the ritual practices, and then the underlying Platonism and Pythagoreanism in which Iamblichus contextualizes it all. And I think that if, if he represents anything, 
And I think Polymnia Athanasiadi is very, very helpful about this. She understands Iamblichus quite, quite well. Um, if there's something that Iamblichus creates, he creates the synthesis between traditional religious practices and magical practices, whether it's sacrificing animals to the gods or offering up uh, incense to the spirits that, that, you know, to the energies that, that are going to fertilize the, uh, our world or the magical practices that, that want to engage gods for specific things. People were doing these rituals. Right. What Iamblichus does is give a, a kind of a framework, a Pythagorean Platonic framework in which those rituals can be understood and seen as ways to fulfill that framework in a lived and embodied way. In other words, he tries to embody Platonism. He could even say that he tries to embody Plotinianism in, in his Neoplatonic approach. But it's a synthesis of traditional uh, magical and religious practices with a kind of Pythagoreanism as theory that Iamblichus sews together and creates a sort of a new way of understanding uh, religious ritual as, as being philosophically respectable and, in fact, the ultimate way to do philosophy, you know, not just in your heads, but living it. And to some degree, I think he did philosophy a favor by making sure that it stayed in touch with a phenomenological lived experience, as opposed to leaving it just in a conceptual place. Mm. Um, I think that in some ways, what Christian theologians wanted and tried to do with their theology and, and the, the celebration of the Eucharist and communion was to do a similar kind of synthesis and not in a completely dissimilar way. Well, I, um, it's, you said that, and um, I was Im immediately thinking about, not about the Eucharist as a practice, but about which probably, you know, the basic liturgical Christian stuff goes back to the first century CE, but the third century and onward attempt by intellectuals to make sense of it in a philosophical or religious theological context. Like, why do we do this? What happens when we do this? What's really yeah. going on? How does God respond to this stuff? It's like the, the same basic structure is maybe present in mm -hmm. both intellectual worlds. You have a bunch of ritual practices. Someone at some point makes a cut and says, these are the legit ones, right? So for Yamblichus, he's choosing certain practices. He's also, there's other ones that Porphyry mentions, like standing on characteres. He says, no, 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 that's just goetea. We don't deal with that. Same with your Christian theologians. They're going to weed out the things that they don't want to count as liturgy and say, these are the actual liturgy. That's a long process. And then the next step for both Yamblichus and the Christian theologians is to say, what do they do? What's the theological significance of them? Why do we do them, basically? And I think it just occurred to me that the rituals are the vehicles of what the Platonists would call our eros for the divine. Mm. The rituals are the ways in which that eros it can be brought to life and channeled and expressed in our behavior. And what the intellectual Pythagorean or Platonic explanation or Christian theological explanation of it is satisfies the mind's hunger to, to kind of be on top of things and saying, no, no, we, we want to invite you, smart, intellectual, always dividing mind, to enter into the unitive erotic stream that we're blessed enough to be invited into and bring all of your mental complexity with you, it all fits in. In fact, it's the way in which it's, it's fulfilled. 
And I think it's trying to invite us as thinkers into a kind of a unitive erotic connection with the whole, with the divine. And I say that sort of um, loosely, the whole, the divine. But I do think that without the ritual expression, people in philosophy get dried up in head games and they lose some kind of deep element that gives the philosophy life to begin with. I mean, you know, that's one thing I like about the Platonic traditions that Socrates is always pushing people to a place where they don't know. And it's only out of that aporia, that not knowing what, that emptiness, that they're allowed to enter into something more profound. And um, I think those, the, these ritual, ritual expressions are ways in which that emptiness invites us to enter into these profound experiences through action, through theurgy, divine action, theurgia, and that that's a more effective vehicle for a human being to enter into a unitive state than thinking about the divine, mm. um, because it brings us into it as not being divided from it, not knowing it, but being it. And that's the difference, um, I think, between theurgy and philosophy as just thinking about. And I think that also is something that Iamblichus represents in the tradition. Not that Plotinus is a thinking about in that sort of dualistic way at all. Yeah. But, but a lot of times I think people can read Plotinus and project onto him our conceptual hierarchy and of ideas and oh those primitive people they couldn't understand Plotinus because they're beating drums and and dancing and they couldn't understand such a sophisticated thinker like Plotinus. Right. Whereas those drum beaters might be more Plotinian than than the Oxford Dons. Mm. That so I, I am saying too much here, but I think there's this it's weaving it's weaving the erotic with the conceptual and I think how do I put it? The fact that we can think and that we, um, we can conceptualize things and we can feel separation is an amazing, amazing gift that makes us human. And it's also what uh, screws us up in the most profound ways as well and alienates us. So this tradition I see as a dance to bring our, our gift as human beings and thinking human beings into this hidden current that gives rise to existence itself and that we can dance in and out of that current and remain human but also have access to what's more than human gregory you know, shaw yeah yes stay yes. esoteric <laughs>